Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Jane Tornator. Jane is a therapist, speaker, and author based in Seattle, Washington. She's been in private practice for 15 years. Jane's style incorporates compassion, curiosity, deep listening, and heartfelt optimism, along with powerful shots of playfulness. She's dedicated her career and her life to helping people love themselves and have self-compassion. Jane received a master's degree at the University of Illinois and a PhD at the University of Minnesota. Before going into private practice, she spent two decades working in the field of Alzheimer's, including research and working for the Alzheimer's Association. Jane has authored over 20 articles, and she just published a book, Everything is Perfect, Just Not Me, A Roadmap for Self-Acceptance. In the episode, she shares quick, tangible exercises for overcoming perfectionism, where perfectionist tendencies actually come from, how to achieve more balance between your personal and professional life, and more. Before we get to the episode, I quickly want to share one of my favorite resources with you, Dry Farm Wines. Did you know that alcohol manufacturers aren't required to post ingredients or nutrition facts on their bottles? That's how they're able to sneak in sugar and other additives to their products. Fortunately, Dry Farm Wines has come up with a solution. Their natural wines are lab-tested to ensure they're sugar-free, lower in sulfites and alcohol, and also free from other industrial additives. Since I've grown accustomed to drinking natural wines, even the top-rated, expensive, conventional wines can give me headaches and make me feel gross. If you've never tried Dry Farm Wines, you're going to be immediately hooked by the flavor and quality of their products, as well as their top-notch customer service. To get a bottle of Dry Farm Wines for just a penny, visit dryfarmwines.com slash thehealthinvestment or click through the link in the show notes. And one more thing, if you've been dieting for years, but nothing you've tried has helped you keep the weight off long-term, I'm so glad you're hearing this right now because outside of hosting this podcast, I help people lose weight for the last time without giving up carbs, counting every calorie, drinking meal replacement shakes, or other unsustainable extremes. Unlike diets, apps, and programs that are one-size-fits-all and only provide short-term results, I guide you through my holistic 3A approach so that you can develop effortless, evidence-based habits that work for your unique lifestyle, you can feel completely in control around food, and you can start showing up as the trimmest, healthiest, most confident, most energized version of yourself. Learn more about my group and one-on-one coaching programs at thehealthinvestment.com And please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. I always love hearing from you. All right, it's time to hear from Jane. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best, without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips 
so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Jane. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm delighted to be here, Brooke. I think it's going to be a fun conversation. I agree. I can already tell just from the little bit we've spoken off air. Um, I think I know a tiny bit about your background, but I'm sure the audience doesn't. Would you mind starting there and sharing what led you to become a therapist and then eventually to write your book? I love the title. Everything is perfect, just not me. I know. I love it, too. (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> that's how it feels when you're a perfectionist. Like everybody else is fine. I'm screwed up. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so my background, I actually, I wanted to be a therapist, gosh, starting in 1984 when my oh. sister dragged us all to a f- family therapist and she started the session with this sentence. She's like, my job is to put myself out of business. And I'm, I was working in advertising in New York City at the time. And I'm like, that's crazy. I thought, what am I doing in this room? This woman's crazy. And she said, the more families I help, if they go on to have healthy relationships and then their kids have relationships and kids and they're healthier, and then those kids go on to have relationships and kids and they're healthier, she said, pretty soon it'll spread around the world and I'll be out of a job. And I'm like, I'm quitting advertising and I want to be a therapist because that just hit me is just exactly what I want to do with my life. So I went back to grad school and I took a major detour. Frankly, I didn't have the courage to start my own private practice. So I went into research and I worked in the field of Alzheimer's for, oh gosh, 20 years. And then one day I was on a study and it was about to end. The funding was about to end. And while I loved doing, you know, research and statistical analysis and writing papers and all that, I didn't get out of bed every morning going, oh, I'm so excited to go into work, right? Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it, but I didn't really, um, it didn't light me up, even yeah. though I loved my colleagues. So um, I thought, well, I originally went to grad school, low those many years to be a therapist. I think maybe now's the time. So I just kind of, I just kind of lacked and I opened my own practice and it took me a long time to build it because marketing was not my happy place. Mm-hmm. And um, I haven't looked back actually. And that was about 16, 17 years ago. Wow. And then why focus on perfectionism? Was it just seeing a lot of clients that struggle with that, that you gravitated to that topic? Well, have you ever heard of the term wounded healer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that's me. Um, so basically the, the, for the, for your audience who hasn't heard of the term, it's basically our greatest wound is our greatest gift. It's often what we struggled with the most and survived and thrived through is what we can offer the world. And so I was a perfectionist from a very young age. I always was driving myself harder. It was never good enough. Um, you know, other people could fail, but it wasn't okay with me. I always had to try harder. I couldn't accept compliments because that meant I was okay as I was, and I wasn't okay as I was. I had to be better. It's this compulsion of there's always something more. I can never rest and be satisfied. Mm-hmm. And um, 
because I'm a perfectionist, I seem to draw perfectionists into my practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a therapist and a coach, I can only work with a certain number of people one-on-one. And this message is so important. And I see so many, especially women, high achieving women seem to come to me and they're just so stressed and they're doing so much and they can't like enjoy it at all. So I thought, well, a a book might reach more people. And it's fascinating. I'm, (laughs) people are buying it all over the world and it's not a bestseller, but it's speaking to people. And I have to tell a funny story. My aunt who lives in Pennsylvania called me up and she said, well, I'm famous. And I'm like, uh, why? She said, two of my friends bought your book and they love it. (laughs) She didn't even know I had a book. So it's a really small world out there. Yeah, that's, wow, how cool. Right? Um, Yeah. So you mentioned a bunch of things there that I think will resonate with the audience. You said doing a lot, not stopping to enjoy it, stressing out. I mean, what are some of the first steps to overcoming perfectionism or burnout or all of the things and just kind of settling in and enjoying the life you have? That's a great question because it's frequently an over people go, I want to, I want to find more balance, but I don't have time. Mm. So one of the things I love doing is giving very short, simple tools. Cause we all know, yeah, meditate for half an hour, go out and exercise in nature, get eight hours. It's like, we all know this stuff, which would be awesome, but very few of us allow ourselves that time or have that time. So I love things that taste less than five minutes. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> what I, I actually do meditate, I've meditated for over 25 years, but how I started, I started in grad school where I was sleeping four or five hours a night. You know, I didn't have a whole lot of time and I was highly stressed. So I was talking with someone who's like, I know meditation is good for me, but I can't make myself do it because I don't have time, frankly. And she, she said, I had the same issue. So I started meditating for five minutes and I went, Oh, Oh, I, I have five minutes. So I set a little timer because I love my timer. I set a timer for five minutes. And Brooke, I, my mind didn't go quiet. I didn't have that magical aha and become enlightened. But I took five minutes just for me and to be present with myself. And my mind was jabbering the entire time. But I still got up more refreshed. So literally within that first week, I was resetting the timer for five minutes. And then the next week, I'm like, I'm just going for 10 minutes. And then I liked it so much because it felt so good. Within a month, I was meditating for half an hour a day, but it was because I wanted to, not because it was a should, not because it was good for me. It was because there was a part of me that went, I like that. But honestly, five minutes of spacious time creates a sense of spaciousness in our psyche that kind of spreads into our day. Because how many times do we go around saying, oh, I don't have time. Oh, I'd love to, but I don't have time. Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, geez. I would, I want to really want to do that, but I don't have time. Oh, this is important, but I don't have time. It's like um, a feedback loop we give ourselves. So if we give ourselves five minutes, that's a new feedback loop of, I have a little time for something that's important to me. So just a five minute, I don't care what you do, as long as it's something that you enjoy, that settles you, that calms you, that you like, I don't care what it is. If you take five minutes a day 
it will start to change your psyche. I love that. I often use that trick with clients. I feel like for myself, I used to do it when I would be walking home from work and I'd have my gym bag and I would be trying to give myself every single excuse not to go inside the gym. Right. Of, oh, act, oh, today was so long. And oh, tonight I have so many papers to grade. I was a teacher at the time. And so I would start telling myself, just go for five minutes. Yes. And if you hate it, if you're feeling still too stressed or busy and you got to leave, then leave after five minutes. And that never happened. It always right. turned into at least 10, usually more like 30. Um, And so I like to say that with clients now of even if something like going for a walk feels too daunting, just tell yourself, I'm going to just go for a five minute walk around the block, right? It doesn't have to be, you're walking miles to start. And just that I find, I don't know about you, but all these kind of little mind shifts and little ways we can trick our mind can be so powerful. They're huge. It is the little things, Brooke. Yeah. I'm convinced, you know, it's the little things that shift our life. Can I offer you one more? I would love as many as you can offer. Yes, we love tangible, actionable tips here on this podcast. Great. So my kind of what I am known for, and if I ever have a, actually, I think going to get a little, maybe morbid here, but they offer green burial burial here in Seattle where I am. Oh, yeah. So you can turn into like dirt. Uh-huh. So you can like feed the earth. So I'm super excited about that. But so I don't know if I'll have a grainstone, but if I do, what's going to be on it is um, if she were queen of the world, she would ban should, must, have to, and need. Mm. Like literally those words, when we say them, like let's do an experiment. Um, is there something that you should do or you have to do? I mean, typically for me, it's in my mind of, exercise. (laughs) Awesome. So great. Say, I should exercise. I should exercise today. Close your eyes. And what do you feel in your body? You should exercise. Right. (laughs) Nice noticing. Now say, it would be helpful for me to exercise. It would be helpful for me to exercise. And close your eyes. And what are you noticing your body? Uh, Less dread. Still not excitement. (laughs) Not excitement, but there's less dread. Mm-hmm. So, um, what that, what should, must have to, and need do is they basically say you have no choice and we do not, our egos do not like not having it. We all become two. It's like, oh yeah, I do too have a choice. I'm going to sit on the couch. I mean, we, we resist our own, you know, our own, what is actually helpful for us. So if you say something like it'd be helpful or it'd be a good idea, like there's a, there's a reason you want to exercise, right? It's mm-hmm. good for your body. You usually probably, it's always true for me. I've never exercised and gone, well, that was a waste of time. Like never. Totally. Yeah. I always feel better after I exercise. So, <clears throat> and another thing about, sh- especially the word should is if we say it, I should be doing this. We're already failing because we're not doing it. We're telling ourselves we should do it. And we're not. So literally we're saying to yourself, and you're failing and you're failing and you're failing. So exercise in the case you just used becomes equated with failure. So who wants to go do something that's equated with failure in your, you know, unconscious. Mm. So if it's a good idea and it's like, yeah, you know, it actually is a good idea. And so then your unconscious starts looking for ways to make it happen. 
well, after work today might be good or no, I've got something tonight, but tomorrow, yeah, I've got that space. Unconsciously, we start to look for ways to fit it into our life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I know you have another exercise that I also love using with clients. Um, can you explain that I am the kind of person who? Oh, yeah. One of the things, I don't know if you find this with your clients, but I used to have a love-hate relationship with, with you know, affirmations. Uh-huh. I would, like, I was in grad school and I would say, I am, I am wealthy. And I'd be like, that is such a bunch of crap. I'm not wealthy. I'm in debt. I'm taking loans out to go to school. So, so my body would just go, oh, stop lying, Jane. So um, what I discovered though, I read this great book called Train Your Brain by Dana Wilde, W-I-L-D-E. She's awesome for anybody who likes affirmations, but it's, it's, it's morphing the affirmation. So it stretches you a little, but it doesn't make you feel like you're lying. So um, I learned this, this one, actually, I learned from my friend on the East Coast. I went out to visit her for a coaching, before a coaching session. And I'm a West Coaster. The conference, the coaching was on the East Coast. It started at eight and, you know, which is five my time. And I'm not a morning person. So I would get up and go in and like slog through the whole day, not having exercised. And I would, I wouldn't feel very good. And so I was like, I want to exercise, but I can't make myself get up at like 3 a.m. in the morning, my time to do it. She's like, well, why don't you just say, I'm the kind of person who gets up in the morning to exercise. Hmm. And Brooke, as soon as I said it, my whole body perked up because that is the kind of person I want to be. Mm-hmm. I want to be the kind of person who gets up in the morning exercises. So I just said it all day. And luckily we were walking at the time. Uh, she told that to me. So I was saying it during the walk. And then at night, right before I went to bed and I set my alarm for, you know, 3 a.m. my time, I said, I'm the kind of person who gets up in the morning and exercise. So my alarm went off and instead of going, it's too early, I thought, well, I am the kind of person who gets up in the morning exercise. So I did. I went for a half hour walk. I felt so much better. And so it was, it was tapping into the, who we want to be in our life that really kind of drives our desire versus those shoulds, which shut us down. Our desire pushes us forward. So I'm the kind of person who is a great way to motivate ourselves because we do want to be that kind of person. That's awesome. I'm sure you're familiar with James Clear. No, I'm not. Oh, you aren't? Oh, he is incredible. He wrote a book called Atomic Habits. I've heard of that book. Okay. Yeah. He's awesome. He says a similar thing. I'm sure all of the habit people kind of have different tactics and different takes on them. Um, but yeah, highly recommend. And I'll put links for those listening to the books we're mentioning in the show notes. But he, I learned that from him first. And he described it just as you're saying of you figure out kind of where you want to be in terms of your goal. And then you decide what type of person reaches that goal and you adopt the new identity. And then once you have a new identity, it's just so much easier for the new habits to fall in line. Oh, is It's just really incredible. And so why is it, I mean, these tiny little mindset shifts, I work with clients so much on mindset because I think, yes, I mean, I'm a nutrition coach, so obviously it's important what you are putting in your mouth and, you know, what's prepared and what's in your kitchen. But 
that isn't enough. And I think that's one of the main reasons diets fail us is because they're just giving us these strict rules, a laundry list of everything you can't eat, but they're not working on the mindset piece. Exactly. Why, why do these small little mindset tweaks work? I mean, they're just so powerful, but why? (laughs) Here's my theory. You know, we know that only 10% of our thoughts and actions are conscious, which means 90% of our thoughts and actions are from our unconscious. They're habits. They're, we, don't, we do them without thinking. They just happen, um, which includes, you know, walking and eating and brushing our teeth. We don't have to think, okay, what do I do when I brush my teeth up? So it's really helpful that 90% is unconscious, except when it's limiting beliefs we have about ourselves, because beliefs are just, or unconscious beliefs are thoughts we just kept thinking about ourselves until they become like a truth for us. So when we have things we want to do and we know they're good for us and we've got a plan and we continually not do them, that tells me that there is some unconscious belief that is getting in the way. So um, these little tips, they're just a small enough change that they aren't really threatening to those beliefs. Mm. You know? So if I do five minutes of meditation, it doesn't mean that that I'm, I have to be this meditator who meditates for 45 minutes twice a day and I will be Zen. And, you know, if, if I would have thought that in the beginning of my meditation career, my ego would have said, who do you think you are? You've got ADHD. You can't even sit still. That's not going to happen. You're so busy. You don't, I would have gotten all these crushing messages of you can't, but little, little things like this our our ego or our unconscious go, Oh, that's not a big change. That's not going to threaten, you know, who we are. Go ahead. Right. But it does threaten who we are, but our ego and unconscious just don't know about it. But so often when I'm working with clients to help them create change, um, what they notice is when they try for this new behavior, they feel so bad. Like they get these, especially perfectionists get this awful message of you can't, if you could, you would have done it already, or who do you think you are, or that selfish, or just all these messages of it's what you want is not okay. So in those cases, um, sometimes even I'm the kind of person who may create too much internal backlash. So I ask people to say, okay, well, do you want to be that kind of person? Mm. And if they go, yeah, I do. Then I'm like, okay, say you want to be that kind of person. For some people, even that is too threatening. So I say, well, do you want to want to be that kind of person? Mm -hmm. Or do you want to want to exercise? Do you want to want to eat in a way that is healthier for you? And almost everybody, Brooke, can get behind, I want to want. Mm -hmm. So I just have them stick with that. I want to want, I want to want until that's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I do want to want. Then you go, well, do you want to? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, it feels a little dangerous, but I do want. So these little things stretch our psyche a little bit, which feeds, we do it enough. It feeds into our unconscious and we've got new beliefs. Like I'm the kind of person who gets up in the morning to exercise. That's really a cool way to think about it. Um, Kind of meeting yourself where you are and having that awareness of, even if you don't, feel comfortable with the, I'm the kind of person who it doesn't mean you're doomed, right? (laughs) There's nothing, it's just figuring out what works for your psyche and kind of tapping into that and knowing that there are things you can do 
to switch things around. Um, do you find that a lot of people wear different traits like perfectionism as sort of a permanent personality trait that they can never overcome? That is a great question. What I find is that perfectionists do not think they're perfectionists because they're not good enough to be perfectionists. Mm. <laughs> it's like, I can't be perfectionist because I fail all the time. I suck at so many things. So, but really the definition of a, of a perfection, perfectionist is I'm not good enough. What I do is not good enough. I always should be better. And, um, what I find is that when people come to me, they don't know how to get out of that. Like they're stuck. It's such an unconscious belief that they are not good enough unless they are better. And they're never better because we can only be what we are in the moment. We can, you know, work towards being a different way. But in the moment, we are only ever who we are. But once they come to like be kinder of like, wow, I... I'm not where I want to be, but I am doing the best I can. Like literally, I am trying as hard as I can. I wish I could do better. Yeah, that's true. But when we talk to ourselves with more kindness, then that um that actually honestly, Brooke, when we allow when we love ourselves more as we are, we move to who we want to be faster. Hmm. Nobody believes it until they start to notice it happening. But when we are kinder and more accepting to ourselves, we literally move faster. <laughs> mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I know for myself, I'm very type A, go-getter, just mm -hmm. always. I was talking to you off air about how I used to have a blog. And then just one day I decided, oh, you know what? I'll just do a podcast and <laughs> had no idea what it entailed. No idea whatsoever, but just dove into it for three solid days, got my hands on every course, YouTube video, whatever right? I could. Mm -hmm. And I had it created within a week and I've been doing it now for over two years and mm -hmm. I love it. But at the beginning I had to, I was editing my own episodes and I remember those first three. I mean, I can't even imagine if I were to go back and listen now what they would sound like, but mm -hmm. I also recorded them multiple times. I mean, I'm talking 15 times maybe for one episode wow. because I would listen back to it, not the whole episode. I would do a beginning of it and then I would think, oh, that's terrible. So I'd go back and do the first two minutes over or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but first of all, listening to your own voice is an exercise in it's itself. Lovely. Yeah, It's hard to do. <laughs> and now I feel totally fine with it because I've listened so much. But mm -hmm. the just agony of trying to get it perfect and over and over. And then I forget where I saw it just came up at the exact perfect time on social media or something. The term done is better than perfect. Yeah. And it just resonated with me. And I was like, okay, that is it. That is my mantra for this podcast. Done is better than perfect. It's yeah. more important that I get episodes out and all of these guests and all the amazing things they're going to share and not worry about the perfection of it because that's not serving me and it's not serving my audience. Exactly. And do you do phrases like that? Are those other kind of mindset tweaks you encourage people to use? Um, what I do is when I hear people talking to themselves saying, oh, that sucked. What I do is say, 
I was like, like what I did with you earlier, close your eyes. How does that feel? Uh And um, they always feel bad. They always feel some sort of contracted or heavy or weighty or, or often stomachs are in a, in an uproar. So I I asked them to pay attention to, to how they're speaking to themselves and then to just change it a little, like we were talking earlier, until it feels better. Like, oh, that sucks. Just notice how that feels. It's like, I feel like I suck. And I, I literally, when I say that, my shoulders come forward. Instead, I say, well, I did the best I can. And if I want to, I could do better. I, I could do it again. And you, I say that and I'm like, well, yeah, that's actually true. I could. But, you know, I'm tired of recording this podcast after the 12th <laughs> time. So I'm going to stop here. So it's it's giving ourselves permission by saying what is actually more true than the old message we learned of, if it's not perfect, it sucks. I think that's so powerful too, what you were saying about the more kind of grace and love you give yourself, the sooner you will see the results you want to see. Um, I find that with my clients as well. I think there's phrases out there as well of kind of, you can't hate yourself healthy or, you know, it's not going to be to your, uh, benefit if the whole time through your nutrition or weight loss journey, you're just beating yourself every step, beating yourself up every step of the way. Yeah. Um, so another mantra I kind of like to use with clients is progress, not perfection. Yep. As long as you're taking imperfect action and you're making progress, even if it's just getting 1% better every week, that's going to compound over time. And yeah. uh, I don't know, like what, where do you think we get the most perfectionism messages or that we have to be perfect? Is it just parents, society? I mean, what is it? That's a great question. I think not everybody is a perfectionist. We Mm. often, many of our um, long-term beliefs are formed before we're the age of seven. Hmm. And there's a brain reason for that, which is from the ages of zero to two, our brain runs in mostly delta waves which means it's just experience. We're not, we're not analyzing, we're not figuring stuff out. Those little kids are just like experiencing the world. They're immersed in the world. And from around two to around the age of seven, our brains are mostly in theta waves. And theta waves are the waves our brains are in when we are under hypnosis. So it means we hear things, which is why we can believe in Santa Claus, because who would think, Oh, yeah, this guy goes all around the world and one night with reindeer that fly and he goes down chimneys and he doesn't get dirty. You know, it's like, and he eats cookies (laughs) from everybody. Like, as adults, we go, yeah, it's not possible. But little two to seven-year-olds go, really? Awesome. Because they don't have the ability to critique because their brains are in theta waves. And then after the age of seven, we get more into the beta waves, which our brain is like figuring stuff out and right and wrong and yes and no and good and bad. But so when we hear things, when we're a little kid, we just take it as absolute truth, not to be questioned. And perfectionists, I think, are the way some people respond. And it's certainly the way I responded to um, like when, when there's problems or we don't feel safe or we feel yelled at or, or, or scared. As little kids, when we are in control and as little kids, we are not in control. But if life feels precarious at all, 
what um, most of us do is somehow make it about us. Because if I'm the reason, like say if there's violence in my family, if I'm the reason there's violence, then I can do something to fix it. If I'm just in an, you know, in my case, there was violence in my family and I took it to mean if I'm just good enough, if I'm just nice enough, if I just make everybody laugh enough, then there won't be any more hurt in my family. So for me, I had to be very, very, and my belief was if I were good enough, if I were perfect, my family would be happy, right? Mm. Other people take it a different way. They become more defiant of like, well, this is a stupid thing. I'm going to fight against it. Or other people go, I just am a horrible person because this is all about me and it's because I'm bad. So I'm just bad. So we all as little kids, we take on, if there's any trauma, we take on the trauma as our responsibility. Because when we're little kids without a fully formed brain, that is the way we feel safest. Mm. So it's however, and you know, as we're little kids, we don't need big trauma. Little things can make a big difference. Like I was reading this book about this counselor once, and he was working with this woman who worked on Wall Street, and she was super intelligent. Everybody knew she was the most intelligent person. But she always managed to sabotage herself before a really big success. And so she went to the therapist. She's like, I don't know why I keep doing this. I, do, I know I'm good. I've proven again and again that I'm really good at this. I don't know why I keep sabotaging with the biggest success. So they're working together. And at one point, she had this memory of when she was a little kid. And she and her sister were finishing up lunch. And her sister finished before her, so she was having a popsicle. And the this woman then little girl said mom can i have a popsicle and her mom said no no you can't you haven't finished your lunch and she's like well susie gets a popsicle why why can't i have a popsicle and her mom said because you haven't finished lunch yet that's why nothing wrong right this is what parents do you eat your lunch and then you get the dessert it's a common thing no bad parenting going on there but this little girl in her very young unformed brain heard I don't deserve the prize. Hmm. So that lodged deep in her unconscious. And so that's how she lived her life until she became conscious of that memory and went, oh, that's that, that actually, I just didn't finish my lunch. That wasn't a big, oh, oh, I guess I don't have to. So she was able to make that shift because she brought the unconscious into the conscious and now she has choice over it. Wow. So even if there isn't some type of trauma right. in your childhood, there could be some tiny little occurrences like that one you just mentioned that yep. could cause you to have these perfectionist beliefs into adulthood. Exactly. Like somebody doesn't like you in grade school, so you're shunned or they they laugh at you or, you know, your pants fall down. I don't know what it is, but it, it doesn't, it often comes from family because that's just who we're surrounded by more. But mm -hmm. it's often our parents doing their best from the message, messages they learned. And I learned should, must, have to, need. I'm like, that's how you motivate yourself. You should, you have to, you, you got to do this. Um, but their parents are just doing their best to try to keep us safe. But our little brains do really interesting things with it. <laughs> yeah. What if a parent, because I'm sure, I mean, I think I was a perfectionist as a child as well. What can parents do if they start to realize their child's having perfectionist tendencies? Um, 
really give them the message that they are lovable regardless. Mm -hmm. One of the things that gets tied up in perfectionism, and I didn't, I didn't realize until I was the age of 35 that my actions did not equate to my value or my goodness. Like I could make mistakes and still be a good person. If I made a mistake, I was a bad person. And it wasn't until I was listening to this child psychologist when I was in grad school and she said, you know, we can be valuable and still make mistakes. And I was sitting in the audience as a grad student going, she's wrong. I know she's a world famous <laughs> expert, but she's wrong. That's not my reality. But luckily I was curious enough to go, yeah, but she's the expert, isn't she? So I just thought about it and I went, oh, wow. I learned that if I did something bad, I was bad. The problem, Brooke, is with perfectionists, we don't take it as, oh, I did something good, so I'm good. Like that doesn't mm. seem to be part of that rule, <laughs> right? It's only it's the bad. Being perfect. You can be yeah. so good, have one mistake, and you still suck because you had that one mistake. So yeah. one thing parents can do is really like when I, I don't hear it so much anymore, but when I was younger, I would hear good girl, good, bad boy. And I'm like, uh, you're teaching them that they are bad or good based on their actions versus I totally love you. This behavior is not acceptable. Let's figure out how to shift it. Right? Mm -hmm. So they, they separate their value as a little human being from the actions. Now they get to take responsibility for their actions and figure out how to do better. Right. But it doesn't equate whether they're good or not. Mm. So that's, that's lesson number one is separate, you know, your actions from your value. The second is a lot of what we're told is, you know, how often did you hear as a little kid? Well, I don't care if you're tired, it's bedtime. Well, I know you're hungry, but it's not dinner time. So you can't be hungry. So stop being hungry. Or, you know, it's, I, I, you know, I know you want to go out and to play, but you got to do your homework. That's the important thing. You can do that after you play or after you do your homework. So we hear all these lessons, which are good. They help us, you know, they make our parents' life a lot easier. A lot of good reasons for them. However, what we learn is that how we feel isn't right. That we should live according to what other people are telling us, which once again, really good reason for it. You know, parents need to have sanity and their own time and, you know, some semblance of regularity makes total sense. But if we could also give the message, I know you're hungry. Dinner isn't ready yet. Just, um, I'll feed you pretty soon. I want mm -hmm. you to be able to eat dinner. And I get that you're hungry. I, you totally get to be hungry, right? So we can validate their reality, but still hold to the, to the, you know, the way we want our family to be able to, you know, function, right? Mm -hmm. But we allow them, like when people say, don't be angry, don't cry. You're saying your feelings are not okay. Some, your feelings are wrong. Mm -hmm. You say, oh, I see you're really sad. You're going to be okay. You're going to get through this. I love you. you. You're strong. We'll do this. We've gone through it before. Like you give them the message, their feelings okay. And they're okay. Like they'll get through it and you're there with them. Those are mm -hmm. very powerful messages versus, you know, I don't, I heard kids sit, my, luckily my family didn't say this, but I heard parents say, I'll give you something to cry about. Oh. Right. It's like, your, your crying is not okay. Stop it. Basically you are not okay. Stop it. Mm -hmm. Versus 
okay, so you're having a tantrum, tantrum. We're going to leave the store now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean you have to let your kids run wild, but you allow their feelings and you set up the container that is a safe mm-hmm. container for them and for your family and the rest of the world. When you were speaking earlier about um, kind of perfectionist tendencies and never feeling like you're enough and just running place to place, it was making me think about some, I'm not a mom yet, but some of my mom friends or moms I work with, and it doesn't have to be a mom. It could be a father as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But is that, is it sometimes something that hits after you have kids? I'm wondering this kind of, they call it mom guilt, but maybe parent guilt of just, you're never enough because maybe you're balancing career and child or there's just too many balls up in the air. I think it's all, if, if I think it's a, it's a part of our personality. We've always had it. Cause we, you know, they basically say our basic personality is formed by the time we're seven. Once we, you know, finally get out of theta waves. However, there's nothing like parenthood to push every single button of every single person. <laughs> right. And we are given, especially women are given this, like before women were supposed to stay home and take care of the kids, right? That was their role. And if they couldn't do that, then they were somehow a bad mom. Like if they needed to work or they even wanted to work, they were a bad mom. Now the message is, and I don't know if you remember the Charlie commercial, he might be too young. I can bring home the bacon fried up in a pan and never, ever, ever let, you know, your man forget he's the man or something like that. So basically you're supposed to be, you know, work hard, look beautiful, make the house beautiful, take care of the kids and do it all with ease. So we were learning this impossible message and now we've added on, oh, and take really good care of yourself and and meditate and all that. So (laughs) so self-care has become another one of those, you should, if you're a good woman mother and men have their own messages, they get different messages, but they're just as limiting. But we learn that we should be able to do it all with ease. And it's just not possible. I was reading a book on uh, coaching today. And one of the things they talked about is, you know, everybody's looking for that elusive balance. Mm -hmm. And you add, you add parenthood on top of an already busy life, like there's not going to be balance. So they said, think about it as working towards more balance or working away from balance. You're either moving towards balance or away from balance. And that feels to me like a much kinder way. Like when we're parents, instead of having to do everything really well, it's like, well, so it's really important for me to be a good parent and be as present for my kids as possible. What's going to make that happen? What, what do I say no to? Right. Right. We, We also, as, especially as women, we learn that it's not okay to say no, that if somebody asks something, we should be able to do it. It's just not possible. It's not, we can't say yes to everything. So part of it is forgiving ourselves for, you know, failing constantly as parents because we do, right? And because often we don't know what we're doing. There's no, there's no little handbook for dealing with these little kids with their personalities and their own little energy and their own little, you know, zest for life. Um, so it's being kinder for like, ah. Yeah, it really wasn't the parent I wanted to be today. But you know, I can be right now. I can be more present right now. Mm-hmm. Like if that's important. And, you know, I would love to do that thing. No. Because I, I want to focus on this other thing. 
and then be okay with saying no. And part of it, Brooke, is I I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking that I couldn't I couldn't make people mad. Mm. So if I said no and people were unhappy, that was a very bad thing. Couldn't do it. When I first started saying no, I can't tell you one how how um how many of those internal messages went, oh my goodness, you're so bad. You're saying no to them. How many of those messages I heard, but also the freedom? Yeah. Like, no. And inside I would both hear the, that's bad, Jane, but also the, oh my goodness, this is so exciting. You just said no. So I, I had both those messages inside me until, and I still have a hard time saying no. I'm going to be honest. It's still hard for me to say no, but it's a lot easier. And I, I see the benefits of saying no. And, and in other words, it, you know, people frequently say saying no to someone else is frequently saying yes to you. Saying yes to you right. means can often mean saying no to somebody else. Uh-huh. Like every yes to something is a no to something else. So yeah. even if you're saying yes, you're still saying no. So just realizing you know, <laughs> everything is a no in one way, right? So yes. what are the ones you actually... What are the things you really want to say yes to and the things you don't? Yeah. And that's paying attention to ourself and our own values and who we want to be as human beings in the world. And I think a lot of our struggle is all these rules we learned externally of you should be this way. You should, you should be successful in your career and fit and, you know, a great mom. And you go on date nights three times a week and all this really kind of like, really not all, nobody does that. Yeah. Nobody does that. So a lot well, more kindness. Yeah. Kindness. I, yeah. yeah. I'm so grateful for everything you shared today. I know I learned a ton. I knew I was going to, Yay! Uh, but I ask each of my guests a final question, which is in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Oh, that is a great question for me. I think it would be for me, the health investment is getting to know myself more and more with more and more kindness mm. of just seeing where I fail, but also seeing the amazing strengths I have and also seeing the little microscopic improvements that I keep doing because I am so determined to be the best person I can be, but doing it with kindness and compassion. And what I know is when I'm more kind and compassionate to myself, I am invariably kinder and more compassionate to everybody else in my life. So me being kind and compassionate to me means I am a better person out in the world and I am spreading more kindness and compassion out in the world. Awesome. Where can listeners follow and find you and buy your oh. book? Awesome. Thank you. So if um, they go to my website, everydaylove.me, um, that's some information about me. If you want to get my tool for intuitive decision-making to make decisions with more ease and trusting our internal integrity, um, then you can go everydaylove.me backslash body test. Hmm. So it's a, I love that tool. And uh, my book you can find on Amazon. You can either push a button on my website or just go to Amazon. Everything is perfect. Just not me. You have to do the whole thing. Cause if you do everything is perfect, 
And just that it comes up to if you're a liar or something like that. Oh. Like, well, that's, that's not the message I, I would like want to spread. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I will put a link to the specific book in the show notes that it's awesome. very <laughs> clickable, but just so grateful to have you on today, Jane. I know my audience is going to get a lot for this and I can't wait to stay connected off air. Awesome. Thank you, Brooke. I'm, I just, it was a true delight. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.